Welcome to Swell Conversations, a promotional HAE series. I am your host, Dr. John Anderson, and joining me today will be Dr. Doug Jones. This is part two of a four-part series titled Painting the Picture, HAE Types and Management Approaches. Uh, so today we will be discussing the nuances of hereditary angioedema, also called HAE. We will explore the challenges facing patients and providers, and we will investigate approaches to achieve effective dialogue between those living with HAE and those helping to manage the disease. In this episode, we will explore the following questions. How do you differentiate the three types of HAE? What can make reaching an HAE diagnosis challenging, and how can these challenges be overcome? And what strategies may be effective when partnering with patients to define treatment goals and management of their acute HAE swells? This educational program is sponsored by Farming Healthcare, Inc. The speakers have been compensated for the presentation of this information. The information contained within the podcast is for educational purposes only and is not intended to be medical advice. Patient experiences may be discussed in this episode. It is important to recognize that these experiences may not be representative as every patient has a unique disease course. This activity is not intended for continuing medical education credits. Again, I am Dr. John Anderson, and let's welcome uh, Dr. Doug Jones. Doug, how are you? Great. How are you doing, John? I'm well. I'm excited to have you here. I'm excited to be here. Awesome. Well, let's uh, let's have you introduce yourself to our audience. Uh, what brings you to this table and what got you interested in uh, treating hereditary angioedema? Well, that's a great question. I, you know, back when I was an intern, I mean, this was way back before even my internal medicine training, I was on doing internal medicine rounds they knew I wanted to do allergy at the time and I'm in the middle of rounds and our doctor comes in the, the allergist and he pulls me away from rounds and he says, Hey, you're coming with me. And so he took me and as we're walking, he said, I want you to take care of a patient that we just admitted to the hospital. And he said, I know you want to do allergy immunology at some point. And he said, this patient has hereditary angioedema. Now, this was about 18 years ago when this happened. And so he said, I want you to take care of this patient because we do not have great treatment right now for these patients and the landscape is about to change. But I want you to take care of them. I want you to hear them. I want you to feel their story and just learn everything you can about them. And back in that, in the day, makes me feel old, but back in the day, uh, at that time it was, you know, we, I talked to the patient, they were in extreme pain and it was pain management and making sure their airway was protected. And we really didn't have a lot of good options at that time. And then you fast forward several years and the landscape has completely changed. But that initial experience of hearing and feeling what that patient went through just really motivated me to to kind of you know hear the unheard and and fight for those that were trying to be understood so yeah that's what brings me here today well kudos to that attending for you know advocating for you uh for yeah for hooking you if you will with that story that's that's a neat experience um 
for our audience, Doug and I go way back. I actually first met him when I was interviewing for Allergy Fellowship. I can't remember if you were a first year or a second year, but. I think I was a first, yeah, first or second year, but we go back about 15, 16 years. And, and who knew that we would both end up so passionate about hereditary angioedema all these years later. So I think it's really neat that we get to have this conversation. Yeah, it's awesome. Uh, in our last discussion with Dr. Siri, uh, we talked about how HAE is a rare disorder caused by mutations in the genes that encode for the C1 esterase inhibitor enzyme, uh, which characteristically will represent type 1 and type 2 HAE. Doug, your intro, that story is perfect to describe how life-threatening uh, this disease can be. Regarding those HAE types, especially kind of type 1 and type 2, uh, we recognize that C1 esterase inhibitor has a central component in this disease. Doug, what can you tell me about the similarities or differences between type 1 and type 2 HAE? Yeah, sure. So both are caused by a gene mutation, which is called a serping 1 gene, and that encodes for a protein called C1 inhibitor. Both of both HAE type 1 and 2 are autosomal dominant, and they have very similar uh, clinical manifestations. Um, some of the differences, if you will, would be type 1. Uh, these patients have low levels of C1 inhibitor, and the literature classically cites this as about 85% of the cases, whereas type 2, they're able to make C1 inhibitor, but that protein just isn't functional. And this one's less prevalent. And again, classically, the, the literature would say it's about 15% of the cases. This is kind of the traditional way of thinking. But as we're going to discuss later in the podcast, there's a recent publication that's going to challenge these prevalence statistics. Yeah, I think that we're all aware that prevalence studies were performed years ago and are, are probably due for an update. Now, while HAE has been referred to as a C1 esterase inhibitor disease, some patients with HAE will have symptoms, but they have normal levels of C1 esterase inhibitor. You know, this is that type 3 or HAE with normal C1 esterase inhibitor. It goes by a couple different names. What sets HAE with normal C1 esterase inhibitor apart from type 1 and type 2 HAE? Well, this form is, has traditionally been considered a more rare form of HAE, and it, it's characterized by when you do the tests, the C1 inhibitor levels are normal, and also the function is normal, or, or so it appears. Now, they have actually pretty similar characteristics to the other types of HAE, such as recurrent swelling, but in this case, there's no observed serping one gene mutation. Now with this type, certain gene mutations are associated with it, but most patients don't have an identified gene mutation yet. So this is kind of an evolving science uh, where we're trying to fit the pieces together. Yeah, I can think back to a time when I uh, told a patient that I, I didn't think that she had HAE because you know, her tests were all normal. And, and then learning about type 3 HAE and thinking, did I, did I just miss something important? Again, that one, I, I never was able to follow up with her to confirm or have another diagnosis, but it, it does make me think back to those earlier days. How about you? What was your first experience like with a patient that 
ultimately was diagnosed with um, HAE with normal C1-esterase inhibitor. Yeah, I think a lot of us have have had similar experiences uh, like that, John, where, you know, you, you, I mean, you do the best you can with the information you have at the time, right? And, and, and then you learn more and you evolve and then you look back and you're like, ah, oh, what if? But in, in the case of my first patient that I actually diagnosed, it, it was one of those where she came in, it was a classic history. I mean, absolutely classic history where recurrent episodes of, you know, swelling had been to the emergency room multiple times over the course of a decade and had been prescribed uh, the typical things like high doses of antihistamines, steroids, immune suppressants, even epinephrine, and none of them worked. And as she's telling me the story, I'm thinking, oh, you have HAE. And uh, so we went through and I said, well, let's do some tests. And then I get the test results back and they're normal. And I thought, well, this, this isn't right. This can't be right. Like her, <laughs> her history is classic for this. And so, you know, we test her again and still the tests were normal. And I, I kind of had a moment where I had to decide, what do I, what do I do here? And it was one of those where I felt like I needed to humble myself a little bit and say, well, maybe our tests aren't perfect. And what am I really doing? Am I, am I treating a patient or am I treating a test result? And, and so uh, I took everything into consideration and I thought, you know what? Her history is just so classic. Perhaps we're missing something as a medical community and I need to treat her. You know, I need to treat her as a patient. And so I went ahead and got like a sample medication of an HA medication that we had and brought her in when she had an acute episode, treated her and she responded, you know, she responded really well. And to, that was kind of my first experience where I'm like, wow, you know, maybe there's a different type out there or maybe we're missing something. That's a neat story. And, you know, it's, it's great that you were able to be brave at that moment and to, and, and to advocate for your patients. So John, I've heard that many people ask how common this normal HAE type is. I mean, some repent reports mention it's rare. Others mention that it may be more common. What's, what's your experience and what do you think? Yeah, I think that the uh, notion of how common is this uh, HAE normal C1 is evolving. Recently, there was a publication that challenges our earlier prevalence data, if you will. And in this study, the prevalence of HAE normal was as high as 19 to 23% of patients with HAE. This was data collected in a cross-sectional manner. It was voluntary online survey data from U.S.-based clinicians who are managing patients with hereditary angioedema. And uh, this included about 113 healthcare prescribers. And so this group of healthcare providers tabulated a much higher rate of HAE with normal C1. In my experience, what I see happening is doctors are going ahead and diagnosing the patients so that they can then try medication. I worry about how many of these patients truly have HAE with normal C1. Uh, could some of them be overdiagnosed or misdiagnosed? I don't know. What do you see? 
Yeah, I, I I mean, that's, that's a great question, you know, because we want to make sure that we're doing right by patients and diagnosing them as accurately as we can. I would actually agree with the the statistics. I wasn't surprised by Dr. Rydell's study. And I'm actually glad that, you know, it's in the in publication now, because this is more in alignment with what I've seen in clinical practice in that the HA normal likely makes up a higher percentage than it's been given credit for. And I, w- I actually wouldn't be surprised as we get more awareness and better diagnostics that that percentage even goes higher. Having said that, you know, we do want to make sure that we're not overdiagnosing and that we have some kind of criteria or do some kind of work ahead of time to make sure that we're doing the, the right thing by patients. If you are interested in looking at any of the publications uh, discussed in today's episode, please feel free to look at the episode description. What can we say about patients who have a confirmed genetic diagnosis that corresponds to HAE, normal C1S3 inhibitor? Is that group of patients different than patients where we have labeled them or given them a clinical diagnosis of HAE normal C1-esterase inhibitor? What's similar or different between those two groups? I mean, the the disease mechanism of HAE normal currently isn't really well understood. I mean, these these groups have features that suggest it's mediated by a bradykinin producing cascade. Uh, mainly the, the way I kind of go about this is what's their response to antihistamines, steroids, epinephrine, and a lot of these groups, they, they don't have response to that similar to the type ones and type twos, um, research investigators report that, you know, patients with HA normal exhibit an overactivation of what's called the contact system that's regulated by C1 inhibitor. So. I mean, I don't know if I have the specific answer to your question there, because it is an evolving area of science. And I think it's important for us to recognize that. Comparing with what we just went through with the pandemic, the, the global pandemic, I mean, that that was an evolving science right before our eyes in a very truncated space of time. And what we're seeing with HAE normals is kind of that evolution of science but it's exciting to be a part of it. I mean, so many of these patients have felt unheard for so long. And it's been my passion to kind of hear the unheard and understand better those that feel misunderstood. I mean, and advocate for them. I mean, it fuels me to continue to learn and assist in the discovery of science behind these patients. I mean, just because we haven't discovered it yet, it doesn't mean it doesn't exist we have to listen to these patients. When, when I was going through my training, my, my a doctor would always say, you know, the best teachers of immunology are immunology patients, if we just listen to them. And I just love learning from them. So I, I don't know, what are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, I think that you're so right that I, I want you to make it easy for me. You're supposed to tell me that we have an answer right around the corner. Um, but you want the magic bullet. <laughs> that would be nice. <laughs> Or the easy button. Right, right. You know, I don't think any two HA patients are created alike. I mean, they have a lot of similar characteristics, but when you really sit and listen to them, there's nuance and and individualized aspects of of each one. And I kind of liken it to cars. There's all kinds of cars on the market and they have an engine 
And some cars have similar engines and mechanics and designs, but others are different. And if you if you want a simple analogy, if you think about patients with with HAE and normal C1, you know, you can liken it to a gas tank where that C1 inhibitor is kind of their their gas tank and how full is that tank? And some may have a larger tank and we just need to fill it more, you know, fuller. And, but it's just like cars, you know, with different features to it. It's, it's, I think it's important to kind of realize that's how patients are as well. So if you're interested in learning more about the disease mechanism of HAE and the role of C1 inhibitor, I would encourage you to check out the first episode of this podcast series titled Simplifying the Science, the Root of HAE. I agree with you that there's that individual journey, especially um, like you mentioned for patients who, who maybe have been pushed aside for a time because their tests have been normal. And speaking of that workup, we talked about doing sunesterase inhibitor function and antigen level and complement four testing. I, I've alluded to genetic testing, uh, but what, what is your typical workup if you suspect a patient of having HAE normal? So when I approach kind of a patient with HAE normal, there are certain things that I look at. I mean, currently we don't have a validated biochemical test. It just doesn't exist currently. And genetic testing may aid in the diagnosis, but as we've already mentioned, many of these patients don't have a known disease-causing mutation. So for example, I've already shared my first, diagnosing my first patient with HAE normal is difficult. I mean, I had to document all the prior tests and treatments that they were tried and failed. And I've kind of used that as a, as a model moving forward in terms of how I approach these patients. I had to document that they had failed the steroids, high-dose antihistamines, epinephrine, and all ruling out other causes and comorbidities and those types of things. And thankfully, I was able to obtain a sample of HA medication to be able to give to the patient when she had an acute attack and carefully document that before and after and that she had objectively responded. So we took photographs of the swelling and her bloating being reduced. And that was key, you know, those kind of before and after photos of being treated with uh, an HAE medication. So we've we've kind of heard about this dilemma of diagnostic delay and it's true and it's real. And as you'd mentioned before, these patients that have gone through this years of struggle and diagnosis, and then they get normal labs. So many times docs give up. And what I'm saying is don't give up, you know, go through, take that extra step kind of just as I've mentioned and see if you can, get that better diagnosis and better treatment for the patient. Doug, you you mentioned that diagnostic delay in a patient with HAE normal, but I'm reminded that many of my patients with type 1 and type 2 HAE are also uh, still subject to that diagnostic delay. What do we know about how that affects our patients? Yeah, this is a real world problem. You know, this this delay in diagnosis it, there was a real world study. It's a multinational cohort. It involved actually over 400 patients with either type one or type two and 44% had at least one misdiagnosis. And the most common were like allergic angioedema and appendicitis and patients with at least one misdiagnosis experienced significantly longer delay to diagnosis. 
and it's substantial. So the median time was about 13 years for those that had at least one misdiagnosis compared to 1.7 years for patients with no misdiagnosis. So, I mean, this is, that's substantial. And that really kind of plays on, uh, in my experience, what I've kind of seen is that delay in diagnosis leads to kind of a mistrust, you know, in the medical community and doctors and, and frustration. And so really, once we've proven that a patient doesn't respond to steroids, antihistamines, uh, epinephrine, and we've kind of excluded other potential causes, but the picture still looks like HAE, you know, insurance often is not going to approve medications. And I've often thought we can diagnose lupus patients, for instance, with a negative blood test result. They have kind of a set of diagnostic criteria. And even if you have a negative blood test, you can still diagnose them. Well, currently we don't have for these types of patients, perhaps the perfect test. So why can't we create some kind of criteria or algorithm for patients with normal uh, HAE in a similar fashion to get them a, a diagnosis and hopefully prevent some of those further delays? I really like that idea about a checklist or an algorithm. And, and certainly, uh, I, I think that what we have through the Hereditary Angioedema Association guidelines, also known as the HAEA guidelines, talks a little bit about the steps taken, but it's still a lengthy process. Any other thoughts about if it's even possible to fast track a diagnosis of HAE with normal serum inhibitor? I think the main thing is just awareness. I mean, first of all, be aware that this exists. And just because somebody has a normal test doesn't mean they don't have it. So don't give up on the patients just because the test is normal. Refer early, refer often, and you know, let's, let's keep them moving in the right direction. Absolutely. We've talked a lot about diagnosing. I do want to talk about management approaches for HAE as well. You know, in the U.S. Hereditary Angioedema Association guidelines, they do talk about treatment approaches and management. What are some of the key findings of those guidelines? Well, I think access, first and foremost, for any kind of HAE patient, whether it's type 1, 2, or normal, they need to have access to at least two doses of an on-demand acute medication. Regardless of whether they need prophylactic therapy or not, they need that those acute on-demand treatments. And then also telling them, again, no matter which type, the early administration of the medication in an acute attack to prevent that progression is key. I mean, per expert guidelines, all attacks, irrespective of location, should be considered for treatment as soon as they clearly recognize it. So, I mean, just treat, have access to the medications, treat early, and don't hesitate. Given that on-demand therapies remain a critical component to the management of HAE, Doug, how do you approach patient conversations when discussing on-demand treatments? So my perspective is, I mean, I try to identify with the patient, first of all. I, I don't have HAE, but I do have severe asthma. And with that, I have to take a daily medication for prevention. However, there are certain times when I encounter unexpected triggers and my asthma may flare up and I can't breathe. And so I have to have my rescue medicine with me at all times because it can be scary. 
And I often will tell people it's just better to be prepared than scared. And as long as I have my rescue inhaler with me, that then that treatment helps me to be prepared for unexpected triggers. And very similarly with these HAE patients, I'll say, look, you know, I can identify with that and those feelings when an acute attack comes on. And so I'll say, you know, it's better to just have a couple of doses of your acute rescue medication on hand so that when you need it, you're prepared and you can feel less scared and less anxious about whatever situation may come up because every, every patient's going to need that rescue medication and a plan. And then that can help them know more specifically how to act and, and also treat each attack early. One acute therapy option for the treatment of HAE attacks is Rucanest. Rucanest is approved for acute treatment in adult and adolescent patients with hereditary angioedema. There was not enough data in the clinical studies to establish efficacy in patients with laryngeal attacks. Regarding Rucanest, Doug, is there anything in the clinical data that particularly stands out to you? So when I talk to patients about Rucanest, I like to highlight some of the efficacy data and also the safety data. And so the primary endpoint in that pivotal clinical trial also looked at the median time from the beginning of symptoms until symptom relief. Now in the treatment arm of Rucanest, it was 90 minutes for patients receiving the, the 50 units per kilogram of Rucanest from onset of symptoms until the relief of symptoms. As we compare that with the placebo arm, that was 152 minutes. So that was statistically significant between those two groups in terms of the time of symptom onset to symptom relief. In the open label extension study, symptom relief began in 75 minutes. And there was an open label extension phase clinical study where there were 44 patients receiving 50 units per kilogram of Rucanest. And in that study, they had 170 attacks. Now, in that, 97% of the swells in that group were treated with just one dose of Rucanest. And nine out of 10 patients achieved symptom relief with just one dose of that 50 units per kilogram of Rucanest. And the other thing that we like to talk about though, is that's great in terms of efficacy, but what about the safety profile? Uh, in terms of serious adverse reactions, anaphylaxis has been reported, but the most common adverse reactions in the clinical trials were the incidences that were equal to or greater than 2% were headache, nausea, and diarrhea. Dr. Anderson, what additional information do you think clinicians should be aware of in terms of safety? It is contraindicated in patients with a history of rabbit allergy or hypersensitivity reactions to other C1 inhibitor preparations, uh, so that's important to keep in mind. And of course, patients should be monitored and taught to monitor for signs and symptoms of allergic reactions, including hives, generalized urticaria, tightness of the chest, wheezing, hypotension, and or anaphylaxis. If any of those symptoms occur, discontinue Rucanest treatment and administer an appropriate therapy. Now, on to blood clots. Serious arterial and venous thromboembolic events have been reported with the use of C1 inhibitor products. And risk factors may include the use of ports or any sort of venous access device, 
history of previous clots, underlying atherosclerosis, use of oral contraceptives or certain androgens, morbid obesity, and immobility. Patients can be trained to self-administer Rucanest once they recognize an attack. But they should also know that if the attack is progressing or they are not able to properly prepare or administer Rucanest, they should have a plan in place to contact a healthcare professional to seek medical attention. They should not administer more than two doses within a 24-hour period. In terms of the most serious adverse reaction reported in clinical trials, it was anaphylaxis. During the clinical trials, the most common adverse reactions with an incidence of 2% or greater were headache, nausea, and diarrhea. Before prescribing Rucanest, please read the full prescribing information, including the patient product information. Note that additional information and resources can be found at rucanest.com. Let's transition back to management approaches. Given that as of July 2023, there are no published, well-controlled studies for the treatment of acute HAE attacks in people with normal sewonesterase inhibitor, how do you approach and assess the management of these patients? So that's a great question. We, we actually just published a paper on an approach to HAE patients with normal C1 inhibitor, including the diagnostics and management. And in that publication, we proposed an algorithm that can serve as a template for you know, how we approach these patients. I mean, first of all, we have to kind of exclude you know, other diagnoses. So we're thinking about patients that have had a failure to respond to treatment with corticosteroids, high-dose antihistamines, epinephrine, and we need to make sure that they're not responding to those, first of all. And for women in particular with a suspected HAE normal, we want to make sure that they've discontinued any kind of exogenous estrogens. But the main thing is that we wanted to get across is approved treatment options for HAE should not be withheld from patients with HAE of an unknown genetic cause. So we've kind of worked through that algorithm and exclude those other patients and they have the classic history of HAE. I feel like we should go ahead and try some of the HAE approved medications and measure their response, monitor their response and you know, see if it's a benefit to those patients. And this can largely be on both on-demand treatment and also prophylactic therapy. What do you think of that, uh, John? Uh, yeah, Doug, thanks for bringing that up. I think part of the reason that this publication was created is to help us to try and be more uniform in our workup and approach for patients who, who may fit into the potential category of HAE with normal CONesterase inhibitor. Certainly you've identified and highlighted some of those steps like a trial off estrogen for some of our female patients and a reasonable trial of FDA approved medications if we've already passed a few of these critical steps or checkpoints on the diagnostic journey. My hope is, is that if we are more uniform, we can both rule in and rule out this condition with a little more confidence. And, and I can see some patients more, I don't know if quickly is the right term, but all of us as prescribers more confidently 
agreeing that this patient has HAE with normal C1-esterase inhibitor, and then at the same time potentially delabeling patients who may have other causes of angioedema who perhaps did not have a complete workup. For those listening, if you are interested in the publications discussed in this episode, please refer to our episode description for a full reference list. Uh, Doug, we're getting close to the end. We've had a lot of fun chatting today. I did want to give you a chance to highlight any of the main points that you would like for us to remember about the conversation. So I think the main things are there are multiple types of HAE. They exist. There's, you know, the well-studied types ones and type twos. There's also this emerging HAE with normal C1 inhibitor. And I think we just need to be aware of that and also be aware that there's some now some publications with a template or an algorithm that people can follow to try and get them on a better track for diagnosis. I mean, these diagnostic challenges remain with patients with HAE especially those with HAE normal. And not only the diagnostic challenge, but even just getting them treatment. I just want to briefly share a, a personal experience that I had several years ago where, you know, we'd kind of gone through this, this diagnostic marathon with a patient, getting them an accurate, you know, diagnosis with HAE normal, but then trying to get her access to medication was another thing. I mean, she was responding to typical, you know, HAE approved medication. And we came across some insurance barriers where we couldn't quite get her access to, to that medication. And because of that access issue and the insurance challenges, she was having severe pain. And she ended up turning to a pain management specialist just out of sheer desperation. And I had an uneasy feeling about that from the beginning. And we continued to kind of work through some of those insurance challenges, but could never quite get over the hump. And she ended up having an accidental overdose and, and passed away from her pain medications. And that is something that I still struggle with, you know, today. And it's something that I think about relentlessly with these patients is the challenge that, that's in front of them. And even though that's something that was very difficult for me, it's something that I've tried to use as fuel to my fire, fuel to my fire to continue to fight for these patients and to continue to listen and, and to work on, on their behalf and to make sure that they have access to their treatments, especially like their on-demand therapies. We talked about, for instance, today, Rucanest as being a, a C1 inhibitor replacement therapy that may be a great on-demand treatment option for patients with HAE. Doug, thanks again for sharing such a powerful and heartbreaking story. I think it's obvious how much that has influenced your passion and dedication as you advocate for your patients. It, clearly affected me hearing you share it. I, I want to thank you so much for coming on today. This was so much fun. I really enjoyed listening to your insights and perspectives and to see how, how passionately you advocate for your patients. Thanks. It's been great reconnecting with you. I mean, we go back a long time and it, it's great to be here in this space and, and appreciate your expertise as well. Awesome. Thank you. 
I also want to thank our audience for listening to this episode uh, in Swell Conversations, a promotional HAE series. This is part two of a four-part series, and we invite you to join us next time where we will be discussing perspectives on HAE treatments with intravenous self-administration, including a unique conversation with a patient guest. As always, I'm Dr. John Anderson. We thank you for joining us today, and we look forward to our next Swell Conversation. Thank you.